The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As always, you got Pootie here, yet again without Pastor Nate. No P-Nate today. Um, that's okay, because me and Dave are holding down Garage Mahal, as always. I got a taste for being on my own right now, and now I'm drunk with power, and I love it. Uh, I'm just kidding. It does suck to not have Nate, but, you know, he's had a little baby. He's got to do his fatherly duty, um, you know, and he's, he's busy. He's a busy guy, um, but that's okay. We are proud members of the Rebel Alliance Media Network, along with the Awakening Reformation podcast, Eric and Grant Van Brimmer. Our newest podcast with Ben Emery, the name keeps escaping me when I say it, the Fathers of the Faith podcast, as well as our blogs. We've just launched our Patreon site in the last few weeks, so check that out. There's tons of new content on there, as well as some merch and all those other good things. And we are active on social media, on Facebook. We put videos out every Friday on popular opinions that we intend for you to like and share with your friends. If you get into conversations and you get a little overwhelmed, just tag one of us, I recommend tagging Nate, um, and then he can come in and just crush the argument. If it's funny, tag me, and then I'm, I'll come in and make a whole bunch of jokes, because that's what I'm here for. But anyway, I'm alone today, so I'm going to hit you guys with some Rebel News, and I'm going to say some of my thoughts on this. So, Daily Show host Trevor Noah said that the idea of religious freedom is crazy. Trevor Noah, okay, he's very liberal, I get it, but... You're in America. You're in a country that was founded on principles of freedom. You're in a country that went to war multiple times for freedom, for religious freedom, from freedom from tyranny. And now you're coming out 70 years later saying the idea, just the thought of religious freedom is crazy. Freedom is freedom. Even if I don't agree with someone's political views, if I don't agree with somebody's religious views, because there are many people who I don't, even if we don't agree with somebody's hate speech or anything like that, the idea of living in a free country means that they have the right to say that. And then we have the right to disagree with them, not censorship. The idea here isn't that we should just shut down all thoughts that are the exact same as the hive mind that Trevor Noah wants to create. Freedom is freedom. And the idea that he's already sparking and that the the left is already coming out and saying that the idea of religious freedom is crazy isn't a good thing. This is a step in the direction that we don't want to be going to towards the idea that any thought that isn't aligned with this political party's values is now illegal and it's now an abomination. This all came after Karen Pence wanted to teach at Emmanuel Christian School because of their beliefs. And obviously that caused a big stir because the school is anti-LGBTQ and, you know, that means everybody has to latch on. My point here is whether you agree or you disagree, 
living in a, in a free society means that you have the right to disagree. You have a right to hold a different belief than somebody else. It doesn't mean that you have the right to persecute somebody for that belief. It doesn't mean you have the right to commit violence or acts about that belief then because those go against some of the principles of the country that's the country that's founded on but you have the right to believe it you have the right to say it you have the right of free speech and you have the right to think it when we get into troubles when we start to try to take those and trying to monitor the thought and the speech life of people in our culture based on somebody else's belief systems i think the idea not having religious freedom is crazy so my personal viewpoint and Trevor Noah's personal viewpoint are in direct conflict. In that case, whose opinion matters more? Whose opinion is more valid? If I believe something different than Trevor Noah believes, if two people's opinions matter different, there needs to be a standard of authority. And this is why we've gotten into such trouble in, the, in Canada. This is why we're in so, such trouble in the United States, because we've lost what the standard of authority is. That a standard of, of authority that these countries were founded on is the idea of the word of God. When we lose that the word of God is the standard of authority, we get into situations where one party can say the idea of religious freedom is absolutely crazy. And we get into another situation where you can get other people who say X, Y, and Z should always happen. We get into a, a position where those, those things happen. When we lose the standard of authority, we stop submitting to the word of God. We get into a, a situation where you get people who say there should be no such thing as religious freedom. Which leads me to my second point. This one kind of ties to the uh, to the first one. This is in the state in the UK. The UK denies asylum to Iranian Christians because Christianity isn't a peaceful religion. So the United Kingdom's government blocked uh, Iranian refugees from coming into their country because they said Christianity isn't a peaceful religion. My first point is is they have a point. We aren't a peaceful religion. So hear me out. I won't be able to understand. I don't think we are peacemakers. We are designed, we are called to be forces of peace in the world. We are supposed to be the peacemakers. Beatitudes say, blessed are the peacemakers. They will inherit the kingdom of God. But Christianity isn't a peaceful religion. Christianity is the, is a religion that says that our way is the only way that there is no tolerance for any other religious system because our system is the only one that's accurate. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I know we live in a society that wants to say, I have the tail of the elephant, so I have a bit of God, and I'm a, I'm a husk over here, and Islam's a different piece of, of the religious pie, and Catholicism is a different piece of the re religious pie. And, you know, all of us are just kind of feeling our way, and God reveals himself to us all differently. And the Bible says, no, that's not true. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets, no one gets to the Father except through him. So that, by very definition, means we're not a tolerant religion. We're a religion that says our way is the correct way and every other way is wrong. So in that sense, I agree with the UK government. Christianity isn't a peaceful religion, but Christians should be peaceful. And so I find it interesting that this government, this government that would pride itself, the UK, the UK government's even farther liberal um, than the United States and Canada, would pride themselves on 
tolerance and accepting everyone, all of these things. And yet we'll deny Christianity from coming into the country because we're not peaceful. It blows my mind. So I want to, I want to say blessed are also the persecuted. I know for those Iranian Christians who I will probably never meet on the side of the side of glory, that this is a situation that is dark and terrible for them, but hopefully some other country gives them refugee status and lets them in, but know that you're being persecuted for the gospel. And that's a good thing. And so I want to say thank you to them for that. So that was the last piece of rebel news that I wanted to throw out this week. A little bit different when we don't have the banter back and forth between Nate and I, but that's okay. And we'll move on. And uh, so we're going to take a short break and then uh, we have a special guest in to do a little bit of Q and A because we got some questions and answers um, in the last couple weeks. And so we thought we'd take a week just to answer some of you guys' listener questions and uh, get back to you guys about some of those answers. On June 1st, join the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity in Grimsby, Ontario for a full-day event called Love Thy Body, a conference on humanity, sexuality, art, and God, with special guest speaker Nancy Piercy and EICC founder Joe Boot. Don't miss this event at the site of high-impact training seminars, including the Worldview Leadership Camp for Youth and the Runner Academy for Students and Young Professionals. Register for these events by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that uh, message from the Ezra Institute. Once again, we have a special guest in the studio today, filling in for P. Nate. We call her The H around these parts. Uh, my lovely wife, Heather, who's in studio to do a little Q&A with uh, the Pootie today. So, Heather, let me ask you the first question. Um, these are all, all listener questions that we got in. So, first one I wanted to ask you, I thought this would be better for you than it would be for me. Who's your favorite preacher? Well, this is a very easy question for me to answer because anyone that knows me knows this answer. And I'm sorry to say, Nate, but my favorite preacher is David Platt. <laughs> I'm laughing because I don't know if everybody doesn't know, Heather is Nate's sister-in-law. So the fact that she's like, my favorite preacher, it's not Nate, it's David Platt. <laughs> yeah. So... And not that obviously uh, other preachers don't do this, but I do find that he uh, he challenges me. He convicts me every time I hear his sermon. He doesn't talk in a way that's over my head using like really big words that uh, I don't understand or anything like that. He just makes everything just seem so simple. But he also convicts in a way that I never thought he would. And sometimes I find myself getting almost emotional about the fact that he's pointed out things that I didn't see in myself. One of the first sermon series that I ever heard from him was in the book of Ruth. And it was actually through a small group with some women that a few years ago, and I believe it's called Love Story. We listen to it through Right Now Media. It's also on YouTube. Perfect. It's only four sermons. He does it on each book, one, two, three, four. And it totally opened my eyes and just made me... uh, I don't know. It just was absolutely phenomenal. And I'd never heard preaching like it. So it just revolutionized the way I wanted to uh, listen more to, you know, hearing sermons online and just really made me see things a lot differently because I wasn't really doing that before. So he really kind of catapulted that part of my life that I never really did before. So David Platt is hands down my favorite preacher ever. 
shameless plug, my favorite preacher is Pastor Nate. Yeah. Um, so yeah. P Nate, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> We talk about pastors all the time on, on here and on the video. So it's a little bit easier for us to answer because there's tons of like that. I could say David Platt. I could say John Piper. We could say whoever. I'm going to throw a guy who maybe is less familiar, and that's Vadi Bauckham. Um, mm. So Vadi Bauckham yep. is a, a preacher. I think he currently preaches in South Africa. Very reformed, very great, huge man, love him. If you haven't listened to any sermons by Vadi Bauckham, check out specifically one that's on YouTube that our small group just actually went through. It's called The Flesh, the World, and the Devil. I think I plugged it in a video that will be coming out sometime soon, if not already. Check out Vadi Bauckham, though. If you're if you're looking for somebody else to just get edified by and want to take some time to just listen under now remember preachers online they don't replace your pastor in your in your area but we live in a world where we now can watch videos of pastors who will probably never meet um, so check him out as a great guy Vadi Bauckham he is good too he's just no David Platt <laughs> <laughs> well, the shade the shade being thrown around here is, is, is crazy so I'll start with my question to you now okay what advice would you give a young Christian looking for and in a sexual relationship. Ooh, okay. Um, yeah. Make sure I have the question. What advice would I give a young person who's in or, or looking for a sexual relationship? I would say the first thing they need, they need to do is flee from that. The Bible is absolutely adamantly clear about fleeing from sexual temptation from fleeing from a sexual depravity and trying to keep yourselves pure in that area. Sex is something that's been designed for the marriage. Um, it's something that's designed to be shared specifically between a man and a woman in the bond of marriage. So I would say my first advice to somebody who's in a sexual relationship or looking to become sexually active in their relationship with their um, significant other at that time would be to flee from that relationship. If it means breaking up, break up. Absolutely. It's worth it because there are numerous problems that can come from being in a sexual relationship prior to marriage. And there are numerous things that I would say side effects and negative, negative things that can happen in those relationships, like unplanned pregnancies, where you now have things that you might not be committed to this relationship. If you're not willing to put a ring on it, you're not willing to put, I can't finish that sentence. If you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't be willing to do the, uh, the other thing. So I would say flee from that. And the advice I would give um, this person, I assume since they're asking this question that there's somebody who's a, either a believer or at least following us so they must understand the tenets of Christianity, I would say flee from that sexual temptation, but then find somebody who can, you can be accountable to, to this with. Somebody who can walk you through proper guidelines of, of dating, not being alone together all the time, not being alone in certain circumstances, that's the word I was looking for, where, you know, this temptation would, ri would rise up. So I would say flee from that relationship as fast as possible because there's maturity in breaking up a relationship for the sake of purity. If this is the right spouse, you have to trust God and you have to, you have to trust that God is sovereign, right? So if you break up with this relationship and this is the person that God has ordained for you to be with, you guys will get back together. It will work out and it will come back together. And if you take time to, to break up and focus strictly on Christ and strictly on him, the doors will open up for the right spouse in your life to come up. And speaking as somebody who did wait, I can say like there's 
immense joy in the marriage when this is done correctly. When you can trust your partner that it's only been you and you and her. This is a little bit awkward today, obviously, but um, when it's just been the two of you and it's just you guys in that in that relationship, there's great pleasure in sex and there's great joy in sex, and it's even more pronounced when it's in the proper place, which is in the marriage bed between a man and a woman. All right, so the second question we got in, <laughs> this is probably directed at me, but I'm asking you, why do you love small groups so much? <laughs> so. Uh, I too love small groups. And let me just start by saying that our current small group, uh, I absolutely love. I love every person in our small group. It started with uh, having, we had a couple more that were in it at the start, but who we have right now is just absolutely great. Like, I just think the world of them. So a couple of years ago, I was also in another women's small group and none of us really knew each other. So I think the common thing that we wanted to do was just come together and get to know Christ more. And what ended up coming out of that was uh, friendships and that was an added bonus. So I think that the key with the small group is going in there, knowing that you want to become more Christ-like. You just have that commonality and then you're also going to grow because you're going to be listening to whether it's uh, other preachers or going through a book. We've been doing video series uh, right now, but I just feel it's so essential and it's nice to uh, have that time during the week as well because we all have chaotic, busy difficult weeks and I kind of have another group of people that get together. And the other thing I really like about our small group is that it's, it's very different. It kind of, as we've discussed, represents what I feel the church body looks like. We have a couple that are retired. We have single, we have, you know, newlywed, we have just all different aspects of life, parents, grandparents, it's amazing because you can have these kind of very fruitful conversations. We can talk about things that are going on in each other's lives. And even the prayer requests are totally different because you just see when, when someone that to me is who is retired. And I still remember them saying that sometimes it's hard for them to, even though they don't have to go to work to, to open their Bible some days, first thing in the morning, that's an encouragement to someone like me who still feels that way and thinking that, oh, maybe in a few more years, I'll get there where I never feel that again. And to hear that someone will kind of, you still go through that stage is an extremely great thing to hear. So having those kinds of stages of life, I think is essential. And I think that's what makes our group so successful. And that's why I think everyone enjoys coming every week. We just love each other and we love hanging out and we have a good time. My question to you, is it possible for a person to repent of his sins in hell? Okay, let's have you one. Oh yeah, um, so <laughs> no, it isn't. So I think we need to start understanding, I, we've talked about this on the podcast before, to the listener, I think, go back, I think it's like 10-ish episodes ago, um, we did an episode on hell and the doctrine of hell. The simple answer is no, it's it's not possible for somebody to um, repent once they're in hell or to be raised up to heaven from hell, because as simply put, hell is the eternal state. Every single person you've ever met is immortal. Every single person is going to live forever and they're going to live forever in one of two places. They're either going to live forever with Christ or they're going to live forever apart from Christ. Obviously heaven 
is when we're with Christ and we can go into a, an episode of what heaven will look like. The Bible has some, some ideas. I don't think we can really fathom what it's going to be like, but the Bible has a lot to say. And actually, um, if anybody's wondering, Jesus actually had the most to say what hell would be like, and that's separation from God. It's a place where the common graces of of God right now, which is pleasantness and like the, uh, the idea that uh, you can still live and, and whatnot will be separated from you. This is a place where God's wrath is the only thing that's present. God's wrath poured out on the guilty parties, which is a frightening thing to think about that in, a, in an eternity of agony and torment of God's wrath being poured out on people who deserve God's wrath being poured out on. Like, let's not, uh, let's not mince words Everybody who goes to hell deserves to go to hell because we all deserve to go to hell because we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we've all sinned against him. I think once you understand that that's an eternal state, that it's not possible, there is no second chance once you're in that eternal state. That's the whole, really the whole point of this side of eternity, right? Like if there was a second chance, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if we didn't, if we rejected the gospel now, if there was second and third chances, it wouldn't matter that I lived my life however I wanted apart from God now, because I know I'd get a second chance, maybe a thousand years from now, but a thousand years in eternity is nothing to get to heaven. No, this is, this is our one opportunity, our one chance to live the way we're called to live. Somebody probably listening to this says, that sounds so harsh that God would eternally punish people for a very temporal sin or very small things in their eyes. And God would eternally punish somebody. But I want to like remind you that God is giving everybody what they want at the end. People who have new hearts and desire Christ, God gives them Christ. He gives them a chance to live with Christ and live with him forever. And people who end up in the other state get exactly what they've wanted their entire lives. They wanted nothing to do with God on earth. They wanted nothing to do with the word of God. They wanted nothing to do with the church. They wanted nothing to do with religion. They want nothing to do with the gospel. Well, they get exactly what they want. The problem with that is that they don't realize what they're asking for. And what they're asking for is a lifetime of misery and a lifetime of all of the sin in their lives being expounded to the nth degree and it let it, letting it run wild in them. Just like a Christian is glorified when we get to stand before Christ and all of the sin in us is washed away completely so that we're now perfected and with Christ, so too will the opposite effect. All the sin that is ravaging those people's lives will be run rampant and it's torment and misery as all you face is none of the grace, none of the mercy, none of the love. You just get the wrath of God. I think that's something that you need to consider that if you're asking your question, like, can I have a second chance card once I get to the end? No. And so I'll flip this back to our Christian listeners. This is why there's such urgency in the gospel. This is why there's such urgency. We see it all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the New Testament, the urgency of which the apostles, the urgency of which the early disciples and the early church proclaim the gospel, even at their own risk. We see this at the Reformation. We see that this throughout all out history, the urgency of which Christians are willing to proclaim the gospel to people because we understand that there's an eternal state and that there isn't a lot of time. And what I mean by that, I don't mean because Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He's not. What I'm saying is that the every single person, we do not know the, know the number, of, number of days we have. I'm about 30 minutes from my home right now. I could leave this podcast recording right now, 
drive home, get hit by a car and be gone because I don't know what the number of my days is. So there is urgency in every single one of us because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. The Bible says in James that we are a vapor. We're here one day and gone tomorrow. There is an urgency that needs to be on every single Christian's hearts because we are the ones that know of and we're aware of the eternal state and we're the ones that have the words of life to share to other people and to plant the seed that God will grow in people's lives to, to give them the gospel, which is why so many Christians in this world are so willing to die for this message. I got another question for you, Heath. I got another question for you. Sorry, I got onto a bit of a tangent, doing my best P8 impression. <laughs> How do you react when the plan of your life isn't going as intended? So I think this is probably a question that was asked in response to, we often talk about suffering. We often talk about like God's sovereignty in our lives and how he works all things out together for his glory and our good in our lives. So I think this question is directly related to, well, how do we react when the plan that we thought for our lives doesn't go as intended. So how would you answer that? This is a sensitive topic for me, obviously, and one that I was kind of nervous about answering. So I'm in my 30s, and obviously we don't have any children. So this is something that was not really planned. I mean, even as a little girl, when you think about looking back and always playing with dolls and babysitting and just always being around kids... It was just always something that was apparent to me that I would, you know, get married and have children of my own. So to not have that and see women around you, your own age, going through that, it can become very lonely. It's in a, it's a thing that you don't really expect to see or feel, but it is something that happens. So it's kind of hard to explain exactly what that is. And obviously there's easier days going through that than others. But I know that that's just something that, you know, you work on with, um, in your prayer life and your devotional life. Cause that's, that's a sin that I'm trying to get through is, is how I'm feeling about that. Because I do believe God is sovereign. I do believe that his timing is perfect and that there's blessings that I have been given, even though I don't have children of my own. So obviously one thing that I'm able to do a lot more is I have a lot more free time. So I'm able to do more in the church than I would be able to do if I had my own children. So I am involved in a few different ministries there and I'm able to give up some evenings. I'm also be able to become a very active aunt, which is something I never thought I'd be. More nieces than nephews, they're kind of outnumbered and they do range in ages, but um, I do have special relationships with um as they're growing older in different ways that I never thought I would. And again, growing up, I was never close with any of my aunts or uncles. So to have that adult in their lives, I'm hoping that that can make a difference as well. So, and then there's obviously friends that we have who have children that I'm able to, you know, be a part of their lives in a way that I never thought I would. So it's still a process is what I would say. And I would say that as we go through what I feels like our storm, I know God is here. I know that he's my strength and I trust in him with his decision for my life. So I would just say that Christ is the center of our marriage. And I think that that's how we can get through any disappointment and struggle in this life is knowing that he knows what's best for us. He knows ultimately what's in store for us. How I would answer the question. Thanks for being so open there. Heath. Uh, I would answer the question is it's, 
It's about trust. When plans don't go, like when things don't go according to the plan, because I'm a planner, I list everything out, I plan everything out. When my plans don't go according to how I've thought they were going to, um, it's about trust. And it's about trusting that God is sovereign. He loves me. His disposition towards me doesn't change based on my stupidity. It doesn't change based on the amount of times I, I fail. He loves me, and which means because he loves me, he's a good and perfect father. Yes, he wants to discipline me. He wants me to become better, and he wants me to become like his son, which means I can trust that all the things that he lays on my path are for the good. When I say good, and we often have to say this, I want to clarify so that nobody's misunderstood. I don't mean that it's going to prosper me here. It's working out for my good eternally. It's working out for the good of anybody who follows Christ eternally for his glory. Because again, we I said this a little earlier, we're here today, gone tomorrow. This life is a, is a vapor and it means really nothing except what we make of it for Christ. That's the only thing that will last in eternity is what we've done for the kingdom. I know that when my plans don't go according to plan and things work out not as I intended or not as uh, I meant them to, I know that God is leading me and I know that he is sovereign over those decisions. He's the one in control of the timeline. He's the one that's in control of all circumstances, suffering, anything that is bad that comes in my life. I know it's something that he is using to mold me into the image of his son. It could be just simply so that down the road, somebody else who goes through that storm, I'm there to be able to give wisdom and say, here's how God got me through it. So I can testify to what God has done in my life to them. If you think about the story of the Exodus, all those people who were rescued out of Egypt, who were brought through the Red Sea, not one of them got to see the promised land. Not one of them got to see what God had brought them out of Egypt for. So would they have intended that when they left? No. The plan was to go through the Red Sea, get to the land of milk and honey and live and live perfectly for the rest of their days. But that's not what God had intended for them. That's not the plan that God had laid out for them. And that looked different to what they did, but God used it. And now we look back on that and we use the story of the Exodus to see what, um, to see how God led his people at that time. And so it's just little examples of things like that we walk through that we can now see. Um, so that's what I would say in terms of, uh, how I get through when God's plan isn't what I expected in my life. I trust in his sovereignty. And I know that it's easy when things are going well to say God is sovereign, but it's, it's more important. And it gives you great comfort when things are going badly to say God is sovereign. Uh, yep. And I just want to end with saying that a quote that we actually have on our wall, on our chalkboard that I was always going to switch up, but I just never do because it's such a great quote. And it's actually from David Platt. Um, <laughs> so it does say, God ordains the stage of sorrowful tragedy and sets the stage for surprising triumph. So just another way of his sovereignty, just kind of on display that we're reminded of that daily. Um, so here's another question for you. Why do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Nobody else is being brought back to life. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a great question. It's really fitting considering it's about to be Easter. Um, so why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, that's one of the most important questions I think anybody can answer. Simply the fact that Jesus rose from the grave changes everything. 
If you say that you believe it, then it forces you to believe that the Bible is true. What Christ taught is real and what the Bible teaches is is to be trusted. And once that happens, you can't be the same. It's interesting. I I believe it because um, this Bible predicted that Jesus would die and that he would die by crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. King David, yeah, the same King David who killed Goliath. Well, he grew up to be a king. And he predicted a few things would happen. And one of his songs that were recorded in the Bible in Psalm 22, he describes how Jesus would die. Check that out. He predicted that's a thousand years before it actually happened. And then not only that he would describe, but that he would die 900 years before crucifixion was even invented. I believe it, one, because the Bible predicts it, and I know the date timelines of when it was written. Um, so that's one of the big reasons I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible has never let me down in terms of what it's, what it's said. And that's not the only reason, though. I would say I believe in the resurrection of Christ because thousands and thousands of people have died believing that, and people don't die for a lie. Throughout history, even today, like Nigeria, 130 people have died in Nigeria in the last six weeks-ish for the gospel. And like I said, people don't die for a lie. People are being murdered for believing that Jesus rose from the grave, saying Christ rose from the dead in most circles at best gets you a punch or a funny look. But in lots of places in the world, that gets you killed. And people don't die for for things that they don't believe in. Oftentimes, one of the things that is strong evidence that Jesus rose from the grave is the fact that his 11 closest friends were all murdered um, because they were telling that Jesus rose from the grave. Peter was crucified upside down. Bartholomew was skinned alive. He was flayed for this. Thomas was impaled on a spear. James was brought before a Roman executioner, and his accuser was so moved by James's courage facing death that the executioner actually, I'm sorry, his accuser rather, actually converted to Christianity and asked to be beheaded alongside James and the Roman executioner obliged. If I told you all I was Superman, if a week from now um, you were all hauled into court and all of you had to be willing to die to, to pretend that I was Superman, how many of you would do so? Well, the answer is none of you. Not one of you would would go before a court, before a king, before a governor, before law enforcement and say Chris Poots is Superman. Not one of you. None of you would allow yourself to be tortured, imprisoned for something that you didn't believe in with all your being. But the apostles, all 11 of them, and thousands and thousands of Christians throughout history have allowed those things to happen to them, all for the idea that Jesus rose from the grave. They saw Jesus after he was raised. They know that he proclaimed that he was going to be killed. They spoke with him. They touched him. Not just once. Jesus stuck around with them for a month. It wasn't just them that Jesus, saw, that Jesus saw after he rose. There was 500 people that saw Jesus after he rose. And I don't know about you, but I find it very hard often to get five or six people to agree on something on a date or a time. But 500, I have no chance to get 500 people to agree to any one thing. Yet 500 people willingly would spread the gospel that they saw and could testify that Jesus had risen from the grave, that they saw him. We would convict somebody to prison in our society today based on the idea of one or two eyewitness testimonies. In a legal sense, having one or two eyewitnesses, that would be a home run. We wouldn't even consider the idea that these people would be making up the story if one or two people could corroborate the same story. 500 people, any reasonable judge wouldn't even listen to that many before it be said it was an irrefutable fact that this was irrefutable evidence that Jesus had risen from the grave. 
So if you ask me, why do I believe in the resurrection? Those are all some really good evidences for the resurrection. Um, but the truth is not one of those is why I believe it. All of those things are great. All of those things are good evidences and good ways to think about it, but not one of them is why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus is because when I was a sinner, I was wicked, I was filled with anger, I was filled with hate, I was filled with thoughts of revenge, and I could share you stories of living fatherless, lonely, suicidal, constantly afraid of the next day, whatever, but none of those mattered because God, being rich in his mercy, sent a man named Ray into my life who boldly told me about Jesus, shared with me what Jesus had done, that he lived the perfect life that I couldn't, that Jesus paid for the price that was required for my sin, that Jesus died and laid down his life for me, and that when Jesus was laid in a tomb, that he borrowed for three days, Jesus rolled that stone away and he went free and that Jesus is risen and that changes the way I live my life. It's, it's changed who I am. It's changed what my heart is like. It's changed my demeanor towards people. It's changed everything about who I am because I am not the same person. I am fundamentally a new human. I am fundamentally a different person because I have a different heart that wants and craves different things. Do I still struggle with some of those old fleshly things? Absolutely. Because my heart is new, but my flesh is still weak. But I believe in the resurrection because it's changed my life. You can give me all of the proof you would want and lay it all out in front of me, but I still have never seen a man raised from the grave in my time. But I believe wholeheartedly, and I know for a fact, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ rose from the grave because I've seen the evidence and I've seen the effect that he has had on all the people who claim that he's rose, risen from the grave around me and in my own life as well. So I believe Jesus rose from the grave and he's alive today as he was on that third day that he walked out of that tomb and that's why i believe in the resurrection of christ and why i think you should too that was all the questions you had so keep your guys questions coming in i hope you guys enjoyed that uh, q a um, thank you very much heather for coming out and uh, filling in it would have been awkward no for me to answer all those <laughs> sorry i didn't let you get any words in i feel like nate we are the rebels like us share us on facebook check out our other podcasts and remember you have an opportunity to join the rebellion and the way you join the rebellion is you start sharing the gospel with your friends, your colleagues, and engaging the culture with a biblical worldview around you. Hope you guys have a great week. See you next week, guys. Bye.